0: So as many people know, I came up to New York from Maryland in 2001 after graduating from law school. And I started work uh, at the Manhattan district attorney's office on September 4th, 2001. What happened a week later and what really set my career on a much different course uh, was built out of tragedy. When I was a private practicing attorney, one of the things I did to kind of create my website is I went around Manhattan and I took all these different photos of the Brooklyn Bridge, of downtown Manhattan. And one photo I took, which I didn't put on the website, but I've kept in my, in my office, is a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge. And then if you pan a little bit to the left, the absence of where the Twin Towers stood. I left the Manhattan DA's office in 2004. I then been a private practicing attorney. I've been working in compliance for years. And one topic and the topic of today's discussion is something that has eluded anti-money laundering compliance, financial crimes compliance, that other aspects of risk management have been more successful at. If you take credit risk management, for example, you can't get a loan unless you have a credit score here in the United States. And there are other countries that have very similar types of credit risk information sharing. So credit risk can be managed when giving a loan, a credit card, et cetera, to a person. But in financial crimes, and the topic, and the and the guests I have uh, joining me today are very, very relevant. Jim Richards is a longtime practitioner in the space of compliance. He's worked at the largest banks in the world. He was one of the instrumental people in bringing together others at other larger institutions to look at after 9/11 as banks were dealing with fighting money laundering and building compliance programs, how the banks could share information in ways that were allowed but were helpful to the financial institutions, both individually as well as uh, collectively. But there's always been a challenge. For some reason, we share information as financial institutions with one another and with the Equifaxes of the world so we can sidestep credit risk in a better way by sharing that information. In information and cybersecurity, I was at a, a conference probably two years ago, and I was struck how information technology specialists, cybercrime specialists are very bold in the information they share in the data they collect and across uh, various systems. FSISAC is a very well-known consortium of financial institutions to really serve as as an effective round table for information sharing, for getting ahead of the cyber criminal. But in information sharing in the financial institution space, in the anti-money laundering space, there's been a much different level of progress or lack thereof. And so Jim's been doing this for decades and really trying to build from traditional information sharing, bringing people together to try and share it and stay ahead of it. And he's worked with over the past few years, some very neat uh, uh, technology firms. And one of those technology firms is, is duality technology. I came to meet uh, Elon Kaufman, CEO and co-founder about two years ago and I was struck by the proper balance that he was able to achieve in protecting privacy of the information that is shared and is allowed to be shared by financial institutions with one another, but the collaborative nature that his technology, because it's encrypted, because the the various privacy laws are allowing the financial institutions to collaborate in a secure way. So I asked them to join me uh, for this podcast and really to discuss what the problem is, what the new potential solution is, how the regulators are seeing it, and maybe how we as a, a, a marketplace and whether it's financial institutions, whether it's uh, the, the regulators or the policymakers or the technicians, how we can finally come together and really start sharing information in a collaborative way that does put the cyber criminal or the the financial criminal on their heels. Great, Uh, guys, thanks for joining me. Jim, Alon, really appreciate the time. Where I wanna start with you guys is the Economist article. The article that came out in April of uh, 2021 and it really put kind of at the forefront. The question is, any money laundering, everything that's being done to combat it, is the process broken for the, for the listeners, whether it's the layperson, the the law student, or the compliance professionals? You know, we've spent so much time. I've done nearly 20 years of this. I started at the Manhattan DA's office in September of 2001, a week before 9-11. And here we are on the eve of the 20th anniversary, and The Economist drops this article on us. The BSA was, was, was passed in 1973, and now an article comes out that announces that anti-money laundering is maybe a failed proposition. Jim, let me start with you. What do you, what do you take of the article? Where are we as a, as a financial institution society fighting this? Where are we as an economic society, a marketplace, trying to fight this? And, and uh, do you see a path forward?
1: Well, I do, Paul. And again, thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, people don't talk about the general deterrent effect of the, you know, all the various national AML regimes that we have. And I think that needs to be discussed. And I know the economists didn't discuss it. But I think the interesting thing about the regime that we have, and we'll probably focus on the US regime because it's pretty typical of most, is it was almost designed to fail. Because the whole purpose of it is to fight sort of global crime, global corruption, or even local or national crime and corruption. And those folks don't operate at a single financial institution. They don't operate within a single state, within a single country. They're operating all over the place. And yet the regime that we built is a very single institution, single jurisdiction, private sector on the one hand, public sector on the other hand, regime. Um, And so I think if we're ever gonna be able to make strides in in fighting financial crime, we have to fight it like the financial criminals are operating, cross-institutional, cross-jurisdictional, public-private sector information sharing. But the one thing that we have to do that they don't have to do is we have to preserve privacy and protect the information that is being shared within those new regimes.
0: What I've seen and what I've found remarkable on your career is you started at the basics of trying to get everyone in a room uh, some of the larger institutions, those that saw more information really probably had uh, more ability to control the levers to, to try and stop um, bad actors as they kind of progressed through, uh, you know, other financial institutions with the consortium. We've seen other technologies. I know Verifin has something that's that's 314B related. I know that others have tried to do it. And now, uh, Alon, you are doing something with duality that I find, I mean, it warms my heart of what you're trying to do. You're trying to let the institutions collaborate, but in an environment that does not uh, trip up, whether it's GDPR or some other uh, US state uh, privacy requirement or the financial institutions own risk tolerance or lack of risk tolerance. Tell us a little bit about how you've been moving through, particularly these past eighteen months, and where you are. I know that you're working with uh, Oracle. I think that's dynamite. But how do you think? And I, I, I think you have the hold that we've never been able to accomplish before.
2: Excellent, and thanks, Paul, for having me. Um, yes, indeed, duality operates in a field which is called the. Uh, privacy enhancing technologies. And really the essence here is that you can do collaboration between different institutes and work together and do information sharing in a privacy preserving manner. Uh, Without going too technical, there are novel technology advances in the recent years. Homomorphic encryption is just one of the the names which, which specifically allows basically to work on the data while it's encrypted. So essentially what this technology allows, it allows banks to start to collaborate between them and broaden the investigation to Jim's point. So banks can have a broader view of activity or across banks, or across geographies in a privacy preserving manner. And we all know that every, any local bank is very, sees a very, very partial view of what what the financial activity is going on. So this need to do the sharing is critical. But on the other hand, we also live in a world where we wanna protect privacy And, and these technologies and what duality is doing basically allows bank A to query bank B or to query a consortium of banks on a specific account or specific transaction without ever disclosing who's really behind that account or what is the customer's name. So basically, it allows you to perform these investigations, create these suspicious activity reports that are so common in the AML space and in the financial crime space in a way that you don't have to disclose, or the bank doesn't have to disclose who's under investigation or any other private information of the customer.
0: Jim, in, in, the, in the prep for this, we were talking about the sharing of information, whether it's uh, by cyber or information security professionals or in the credit risk management side. Uh, on credit, financial institutions have been sharing credit for over 200 years. Uh, the credit risk score obviously is something that is embedded in, in US um, uh, debt origination, modifications, et cetera. We know, I we all have credit risk scores. Uh, the rub internationally is some people who try to come here uh, who don't have credit risk scores have a very hard time getting credit and there's actually solutions being Uh, offered to, you know, get those credit scores so we can allow them in the marketplace. Why have we had such a difficult time, given that there's such an, there's there's so much incentive for us to share information, and duality notwithstanding, and the the opportunities that they're providing, but why have we had such a hard time, 314B is near 20 years old, why haven't we been able to crack that nut?
1: Well, I think part of it, Paul, is 314B, which is a section of the USA Patriot Act from 2001. Um, let me, I'll back that up a little bit. So the Patriot Act section 314 was, was titled Cooperative Efforts to Deter Money Laundering," And it provided for two things. The first was 314A, which was public to private sector mandatory information share. So that's where the public sector, primarily FinCEN, law enforcement through FinCEN, would provide target names to designated financial institutions and ask them to sort of review those through their customer and transaction system. But that was a mandatory regime. 314B was the private to private sector, bank to bank, let's call it, voluntary information share. So a financial institution had to voluntarily sign up if it wanted to participate. And then once it was signed up another participating financial institution could query it for a customer or a transaction. But it's that voluntary nature, Paul, that I think has really put the kibosh on everything. Because if a financial institution doesn't have to do something and doesn't do it, they cannot be found liable by their regulators but if they sign up to do it and don't do it well or even perfectly they can get into trouble with their regulators so that's why only 40% of banks and credit unions are actually taking advantage of this provision
0: those are those that 40% and the rub is 40% are signed up but how many are actually using it and then those that are actually using it how are they how, how many are actually using it well, or using it enough?
1: You- not, not many are using it. Of the 40%, and 40% of banks and credit unions is less than 4,000. And there's probably about 500 or so that are active. And those that are active, and I know this from my time at a, at a big financial institution, it, you don't use it very much. And you generally only use it with your peers. But here's where I really think that we were lacking. That same 314B that was passed in 2001 allowed for associations of financial institutions to share information, to form a formal association, get that approved by FinCEN, and then you could use 314A to bring a target in and they can share information amongst that those association members. 20 years later, we believe there's only seven of these formal associations that have been created.
0: Do you think we'll ever get to a point where it will be mandatory to share this information? And not necessarily manually, but maybe in an automated fashion that that central repository, that private sector FinCEN will be will have the, the, the security protocols around it, the safe harbor around it, uh, so that the information can be must be shared and therefore queried and and used as an additional due diligence tool?
1: Um, Must and shall are are tough words, Paul, but um, I I really think that if if we really wanna make a difference, then yes, the voluntary information sharing should be mandatory, so long as we have the ability to protect the privacy and the, you know, sort of the PII aspect of it. And as Elon mentions, I mean the, the technology's there, the privacy enhancing technologies are there, and uh, we've seen it with the fo- what the folks at Verifin are doing and what Duality can do uh, with its homomorphic encryption. We can protect the information and do those cross-institutional collaborative investigations.
0: So I think it's going to be terrifically difficult to mandate it, but Elan, for you, making it actually something that I know as a financial institution, I can engage in get to get the data I need or to get the answer I need while also protecting you know, any of the information that I might have available for the quid pro quo. But generally, how has it been going over the past uh, 18 months, 12 months as, as you're getting into the marketplace, the work that you're
2: doing with, uh, with Oracle? Um, sure. I, I just want to, before we dive into our, our last 18 months, I think um, as we alluded to before in, in the financial crime space, in the fraud space, we've seen more uh, users of sharing. And I think it's because it's easier for the banks to share and the results are more direct and, and impact their bottom line. So if banks, you know, speci- specifically in fraud, if you prevent fraud, you impact your bottom line. And so there's an incentive beyond the voluntary or beyond the law stuff. There's, there's a clear financial incentive to do it. And uh, I used to work uh, in, in, a, in RSA doing uh, solving financial fraud and online banking fraud. And in that case, the, the ROI is very, very clear. In the anti-money loaning space, the ROI is less clear on a bank level. It's more a nation level. So, so that's one thing that we have to solve the financial incentive for these organizations to do it as well if it's voluntarily and you can't see the bottom line and it's also hard to do or takes a long time so nevertheless it's it's, uh, it's something that uh, we, the adoption will be lower and that's exactly one of the goals of duality it is using the technology makes it automated makes it easier makes it quicker and also preserve privacy so so that overcomes the obstacles of, of uh, uh, the privacy angles and, and they're making it easier to use and having an IT or a technology tool to do it. Uh, and, and, but we still have to solve the other hand side of it, which is giving the financial incentives to the banks. I think what we've seen in the last 18 months and, and Jim has a, also has a, has a clear view in this area is that we have seen not only more interest from banks to try and solve this in a, in a broad sense, but we've also seen the regulators and specifically FEDF, pushing towards doing more information sharing, which in return, uh, a lot lot more of the banks have started to look into these technologies as I alluded to, they're called PETS, privacy enhancing technologies and duality itself, we've seen um, a huge growth in in interest from banks and anti-money laundering providers. So as you mentioned, Paul, we are collaborating and integrating with Oracle. Oracle has a solution for anti-money laundering, and basically Oracle and Duality together will allow any Oracle customer to query any other Oracle customer and build uh, these suspicious activity reports and do these investigations much more efficient, much more quicker, and in a privacy-preserving manner. And we're going to create such consortiums and such networks, as we said, that will uh, hopefully remove the technical challenges and the privacy challenges, we still have to, uh, of course, uh, create an incentive for the banks to do it on a financial level.
0: So for, for Actimize, uh, Actimize, uh, Mantis being the automated solution that, that uh, Oracle provides to do surveillance over financial transactions, financial institutions each use the Mantis platform the idea being duality will then bridge the gap between all the different Mantis users, is that fair?
2: Exactly, so so a classical Mantis solution or or the others anti-money laundering offers in the market, look internally what happens in the bank. And I think the statistics show that only 25% of the financial activity of a given customer happens within the bank itself. So allowing within this anti-money laundering tools, within the Mantis tool, to investigate and query other banks is a huge thing. And uh, what will come built in is the ability for any customer of Mantis that uses their investigation tool to query all other banks with the same uh, technology in a seamless way and in a privacy preserving manner.
0: What I've seen, Jim, over the past few years is a strong push by FinCEN to say, look, it's not just a, a querying tool if you get an alert that pops. Like there's different ways to use it, you know, almost through through the life cycle of the of the prospect through client relationship. Do you see Do you see that getting broader acceptance in the marketplace? That it's it's not just if you get your 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 Mantis alert. And I'm I'm in Mantis for a little bit. I previewed a, a question I have about other uh, vendors out there and some interoperability. Alon, to preview a question in a few in a few minutes. But do you see marketplace embrace of wow we actually can use this at in onboarding uh and and regular due diligence cdd triggering events things of that nature
1: oh absolutely it has to be the full spectrum because you know if if you think of what anti money laundering really is it's it's simply re- reverse marketing think of marketing what is that is who are our, our target customers how do we get them into the bank how do we keep them? How do we monitor their activity so that we can sell them more stuff and keep them as a customer? Well, anti-money laundering is just sort of the reverse of all of that, right? How do we identify the worst customers? How do we keep them out? Those customers that we do on board, how do we find the ones that are actually the bad ones? How do we monitor their activity? We don't want to sell them more stuff. We want to exit them after, you know, after we've filed our reports. So using the privacy enhancing technologies, they're sort of the soup to nuts in the customer relationship, has to be the future of the way to do this. But again, it can only be done, Alon, you make a great point that 25% of a customer's activity occurs within that financial institution, which means 75% is occurring somewhere else. How do you pull that 75% in? The only way you can do it is cross-institutional, and to really enhance it, public-private sector and cross-institutional information sharing, and collaborative investigations. I think that's the other key point here, Paul. It's not just sharing of information, it's being able to do those joint investigations or the collaborative investigations.
0: How would it work at onboard? And this is is a toss-up for either of you guys. Um, I'm a compliance officer or a a bank officer. Uh, A prospect comes in, never seen them before, how would it work using duality, knowing, let's assume that that prospect already has uh, a a financial uh, profile elsewhere. How would I use that as a querying tool that would protect the other financial institutions that have that uh, prospect's information so I get what I need and no more and the financial institutions on the other side that actually know that prospect are giving me enough that I need and no more on their side.
2: So so uh, um, technically how it will happen and then uh, also uh, practically. So what would happen within this network is a new customer comes to you. You don't know much about him. You could now query all other banks in your network and get back results on a specific customer without disclosing who he is because obviously you don't want to disclose who he is because you may lose the business. However, you still want to collect information and you want to collect information in a way that doesn't harm the other banks as well. So like simply or even querying, you know, asking has this has this customer been suspected, been flagged in any of the other banks doing the suspicious activities or does this other what are the sources of funds of this kind of account and so on. Or types of query you can do where in our system, uh, we basically, the different banks in the, in the consortium agree on the types of questions you can ask because you can ask also very uh, um, uh, specific questions and what's typically are asked in the know your customer environment or kind of yes or no answers that you don't even know what is the bank, which, which bank is answering. So you like spread the query to the consortium and get back the results without your ability to pinpoint and say, okay, bank B answered that and bank C answered that, uh, this. And of course, in a way that you protect your customers. So, so that's how it's done with this technology. It's, it's what's called privacy preserving queries and without also allowing the responders uh, to disclose too much information on their side. But I, I do have to mention here, cause sometimes it sounds like this is a way to investigate things and, and you know, maybe creep behind different walls everything in the setting using duality and this technology, everything is agreed upon between all members of the consortium. So the types of queries, the number of queries, the entities that are querying, everything is known upfront. What is protected and protected by encryption is actually the queries themselves and the answers. So so we make sure that the information is kept secret and, 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 and the and private, but the setting of who's asking what and who's collaborating is, of course, known.
0: Do you have um, users right now using this through uh, through Mantis?
2: So, yeah, we, we're launching the Oracle network uh, towards the end of this year. There's a m- number of uh, pilot banks uh, on, on the way there, and we're launching the broader oracle Mantis networks towards the end of this year. And we have similar kind of networks in different geographies as well.
0: The, the, the interoperability that I was getting to earlier. If, if, what happens if you're not on the Mantis platform? Yeah. Because it takes an inordinate amount of effort to replace models. And so if this does have those network effects, so if you're a Mantis user and you realize that duality offers this, what you've got your baked in network effect. But what about for those users that aren't on the platform uh, whether it's domestically or internationally? Is there any hope for them or do they should they be moving over to Mantis?
2: Sure. So, yeah, we, we if you look at it, the grand scheme of things, we have to enable, and in order to fight the, the, the financial crime, we want to enable cross-bank, cross-geography, and even between banks and insurance companies and so on. So it's, it's way beyond just the banking industry. We want to enable this world of... Um, um, collaborative analysis of uh, financial crime. Uh, currently, e- each of our customers have, have their own network. Technically, there's no limitation, but business-wise, we haven't set it up yet. But there's no no, no challenge at all that and the network of one customer can't interact with the network of another customer.
0: Jim, on the regulators, if you recall, and I won't name the bank, but it, it set the fines on a new level near 10 years ago with a near $2 billion fine, 10 billion, billion billion of fines were levied last year per that Economist article. I think uh, what they say, an 80% increase from the year prior, hundredfold fold uh, times being spent to actually fight money laundering than the actual amounts being seized the regulators, what are you hearing? Obviously they want it, but how are they helping prime the pump, push the marketplace US as well as international into embracing this?
1: Well, internationally, the Financial Action Task Force has done quite a bit of work around information sharing. I think their last publication was November of 2017 where they sort of put together this, I think they call it the consolidated standards on information sharing. But in the US, we just passed the AML, Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020. That was passed on January 1st of 2021. And there's a couple of provisions in there, Paul, that really came from the regulatory community from FinCEN and from law enforcement. And that is sort of the opening section of that act um, sort of sets out this, I think it was six purposes of the AML Act of 2020. And one of them was to encourage information sharing. And then there's a specific provision in there, section 6214, that calls for a study and a report by the federal functional regulators, the attorney general, and the secretary of the treasury, on how to encourage information sharing and that public-private sector partnership. So they're really pushing for it as well. Um, They see that there's still a lot of friction in this Bank by bank by bank by bank approach to fighting money laundering. Um, they have to make the change. They know they've got the technology now to do it. That uh, you know we've been talking about the privacy enhancing technologies. So I think we're going to see some some big movement in the next couple of years.
0: And let me close with that. If you th- if we project ourselves, I hate to say five years because a COVID type event made us change our patterns and behaviors that probably would have taken 15. But for the sake of the question, what do you see, how do you see us fighting anti-fighting money laundering if The Economist did a follow-up article on this, uh, say, in 2026? And I'll, I'll, I'll first turn to Jim and then maybe uh, uh, Alon.
1: Well, there's, I forget who said it. They said that they had predicted eight out of the last three recessions. Um, and uh, so I, I think I'm, I'm not very good at predicting myself, but, you know, if five years from now, if we aren't actively involved with mandatory, and I think it has to be mandatory, at least for the largest, sort of the globally significant firms, if we don't have mandatory cross-institutional public private sector information sharing, with those cross institutional investigations, we will have failed.
2: I'll say it as bluntly as that. Alan? Well, I'll take off from where Jim ended. I think that several years back, it was hard to mandate these things because there was a clash of information sharing and investigation and privacy. And we are living in a world where. If you look at it a broader scheme, uh, big data, the move to the cloud data science and privacy are really clashing. Now, so it was hard to mandate it up until now, but because of these new technologies, it's becoming now possible. So it's now more possible than before that you can mandate it. I hope it will happen in five years. We know that things don't necessarily work so quickly, but uh, this, this technology allows to mandate these things and the minute they're being mandated, uh, they will be deployed. Uh, Already today, if we talk about 314B, which when it's done manually, it will take around three to four months. So even if you're voluntarily doing it, it's a very long and hefty process with no outcome. If you can uh, uh, click a query and get an answer within 30 seconds uh, and it's privacy preserving, there's no reason why organizations won't be using it. If it's mandated, it will just be easier. And I want to go even beyond uh, AML and financial crime. I think the financial industry can open the way to this information sharing around anti-money laundering. And it will hopefully percolate to other areas in the world as well. And healthcare is just another example where for very different reasons, there's of course a lot of value of sharing data, but data is still very private. So I don't only hope that it will be mandated and customers will be using it more and more, but it will also spill over to other industries and we'll see a more collaborative world when at the same time, a much more privacy preserving uh, setting.
0: Well, I think, we've, I think we've crossed the Rubicon with our need for the technology to get us, us lawyers, us compliance professionals, us lay professionals to finally use information sharing. In a truly collaborative way that does protect the the the, the citizen and does protect the the bank's own uh, goodwill and 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 business plans and customers. Uh, in on the cyber side, you, you know, or the technology side, that the, the oft-used phrase is "move fast and break things." And what I think you guys are doing, uh, Elon is you're helping us move fast and not breaking the wrong things. So. I want to thank you both for your time uh, and very much appreciate you being on. So thank you. And I'll see you guys soon.
2: Cheers, Paul. Thank you very much, Paul.
0: Great. All right.